This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy Woo! and sadness oh. and anger. Ah! Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. Ah! But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. Ah. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club for the month of January 2017. I'm Katie Waldman, a staff writer here at Slate, and I'm joined today by Laura Bennett, Slate's culture editor. Hey, Laura. Hi, Katie. And making her audiobook club debut, Slate staff writer and host of the podcast Represent, Aisha Harris. Hey, Aisha. Hey, I totally, I just realized that I've never been on the audiobook club before. I know, I'm so excited. Yeah. I didn't realize that either. I never really read books, so that's well, <laughs> part of the reason why I'm not welcome. much of a book reader. But I'm happy <laughs> yes. to be here. Um, so you guys are here because we've convened this emergency audiobook club to address the sad news that Carrie Fisher, the beloved actress and writer, has died. We were going to discuss Bob Dylan, but he is fortunately still with us. So we thought that instead we would tip our hats to Fisher and honor her literary legacy. So we're going to talk about uh, her novel, Postcards from the Edge. Um, and I think I think it's accurate to call it a novel, right? Like it's it's thinly veiled autobiography, maybe, or maybe it came more purely out of her imagination. And I guess we can get there. She pretty emphatically called it a novel. She's kind of rejected the label memoir. Debbie Reynolds definitely rejected the label memoir. Um, it was a kind of you know lately, it was a definitely a fictionalized account of her own life and her own emotional landscape, but but definitely a novel. All right. So novel, the case closed. I, I retract that uh, level of ambiguity. Anyway, she published it in 1987. Three years later, it was made into a great movie starring Meryl Streep and Shirley MacLaine. And I think Fisher was the one to write the script and to adapt it. Um, I had never read this book before. It totally surprised and delighted me, and I can't wait to talk about it with you guys. But I also have quibbles. Um, so I guess, though, maybe we should start with praise. Uh, Aisha. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think are, hmm, I don't know whether to give you an actual number, or what do you think are Fisher's strengths as a writer? Ooh. Um, well, I think she's really, really excellent at capturing what it's like to be, at, and granted, I've never been an addict, but what I imagine an addict, what goes through an addict's mind, or even just someone who might be like obsessive, compulsive, or that sort of thing. There's a moment where actually there's a very long section of the of the book where she is in the body. And this is where I got for, I don't know, should we back up and say that this is, this book is very confusing to read if you go into it not knowing anything? <laughs> sure, yeah. Maybe we should just like quickly say what the structure is like. I, I went into it and 
uh, like you, I haven't I hadn't read the book before. I haven't I haven't seen the movie. I still haven't seen the movie at this point. And I went into it not knowing really anything except that Carrie Fisher had written it and that it was like loosely based on her experiences. And reading it, I got I became very confused as to whose voice. I think I know the part you're talking about, especially because you said she's in the body of which sort of seems like I mean, she's definitely throwing her voice. But there are so the structure of the book is it's 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 complicated. It's part epistolary. Um, It's not quite clear, you know, where these letters are going or sort of who she's writing them to, why she's kind of chronicling her time in rehab in epistolary form. But we start out um, getting dispatches from inside her head from her experience in a drug rehab. She's had some kind of like a crack up and she is a, you know, a starlet who's experienced a good deal of success in Hollywood. Obviously, there are a lot of parallels to Carrie Fisher's life, who herself was in rehab for a time after a similar crack-up. And her name um, is, Su- I don't know if we've said it, but her right. name is Suzanne. Suzanne Vale. Although I keep, kept calling her Carrie in sort of like my uh, internal monologue. So it starts out epistolary, but then there are these kind of confusing and crackly dispatches from the brain of this guy named Alex, yes, who right. is also in rehab with her. and. I loved those sections, despite wondering why they were in the book. Yes, yes, um, I completely the, agree. I think I'm the only one of the three of us who's seen the movie, and I will say that they are not in the movie. Alex is not even a character in the movie, as far as I could tell. Yeah, so that, that probably does makes not sense. surprise me at all I know. because he was <laughs> utterly, utterly peripheral and utterly mm-hmm. delightful. Totally, um, totally. but it's, it's also very strange because that first section, I think that's the section actually entitled uh, "Postcards from the Edge," and then after that, there are I think four or five more, and there, let's see, a banquet of crumbs, dreaming outside your head, dysphoria. Um, the, and the dating accident, and then there's an epilogue. And all of those are narrated from a kind of close third person. So you get Suzanne's perspective, but there is this other narrator who's who's kind of watching her very closely and seems to be, seems to have access to what's happening inside her head, but is not quite identical to her. So right. it, it is a peculiar decision to start off with these first person dispatches and then to switch modes and not really come back around at the end although she does close at the end as an epilogue with a letter but so i i also liked the those sections with alex i thought they were they were just they were just like not what i was expecting so i was pleasantly surprised but am i the only one who actually like didn't understand for a while that it was i that she was in alex's brain because that is what happened to me where and I don't know if maybe I downloaded this on Nook. And so, you know, the weird way on like tablets where the, the pages are they don't transfer the way that they would in a, a actual book. And so like this is why the I formatting is Nook. weird. That sounds uh, it's frustrating. Very, it's very weird. Um, anyway, I there it, it she goes in and out between their their narratives without really any signaling whatsoever. And so. I was right. confused. It yeah. definitely took me a bit to figure out exactly what was going to take me like a few, you know, passages at least to understand that we were inside someone's uh, someone else's head completely. Right. But, you know, like Aisha, I would not say I'm a particularly addictive personality. And yet I really felt like I was spiraling along with him. Like these were the sections. It's almost like she decided to insert like a tight little case study of what the descent into, uh, you know, a bender really looks like. And... Uh, I thought that the Alex stuff gave us some of the most acute 
and disturbing and hilarious, you know, windows into what, you know, into to like the actual being in the throes of of drugs. Yeah. I mean, I thought that it had a lot of momentum and was uh, I hope this doesn't sound like uh Undermine, but it, it was very fun to read. I also think that this first section that, I mean, for me also, it really helped that the fonts were alternating. I think that was basically my uh, my key to interpreting who was talking. But that might um, be why I couldn't tell because my fonts did not alternate. Yeah, yeah, I can't imagine that sounds actually really difficult to decode. Um, but I also think that this first section might have been the most generic. Like it was still delightful, but it's like when you are watching a teen movie and there are mean girls and they say catty things about each other's outfits. Like it is fun to observe, but it's also kind of unsurprising. And especially lines where she says, you know, I hate my life. And then it's like the next section. Uh, Just these kind of um, slightly banal statements uh, that you would expect from a kind of angsty, laconic, um, cool girl addict who is like also funny and likable. Um, And in the same way, I thought that uh, some of Alex's interior monologue was pretty much like what you would expect from an addict, which maybe just means that it's realistic and accurate, but also did not seem very inventive to me, which maybe maybe that's not her end game. Right. Well, you know what I I thought this was like a strange little book and it was not what I was expecting at all in some ways. I think we probably all had the experience of having not seen the movie before we read the book. And knowing that Meryl Streep and Shirley MacLaine were cast in the movie and waiting page by page for her mother to turn up as a character. She she doesn't really. Like, Doris is a really spectral presence in the book. We get a few asides about her calls and her visits, but we don't. She is definitely not the sort of bright and blinding oppositional force that she is in the movie. But what I loved about this book was was just the voice. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just... Actually, I read this piece in Vulture describing her. It was actually about the script for Postcard from the Edge, which she also wrote. But um, describing her morning after sense of humor. And I just Mm. loved that. Her style really does have all the kind of residual mania and dawning self-laceration of someone coming off a bender. It's sort of dark and spiky and depleted and self-sabotaging and all of these uh, it's just it's just like so ferocious and interesting to read, and I really hadn't read a voice quite like it, and it helped me understand Carrie Fisher, the human, and the sort of personality a lot yeah. more. I think that's a really, I mean, if I were to characterize like the part of this book that resonated the most for me or that I most enjoyed uh, spending time with, it, it is her voice and especially her kind of like pithy and epigrammatic tendencies like she I feel like she writes like someone who spends a lot of time in auditions like given 30 seconds to completely charm and win over an audience because she writes so concisely in these kind of aphorisms um like she just has these little throwaway lines like instant gratification takes too long or I wanted pain reduction and mind expansion but I ended up with pain expansion and mind reduction or I mean like every page is full of these bon mots um, and they're very polished and they're very self-deprecating and they're very apt um, and I just really admire that uh, concision and that way with language and I 
wasn't necessarily expecting it from someone who um, didn't spend the first part of her career really advertising her writing skills as opposed to her acting skills. Not that, um, not that those two things are mutually exclusive. She kind of reminded me in some ways, or Suzanne, or really the way it was written, reminded me a lot, maybe just because this is like the, the character I associate Carrie Fisher with most, but um, her character in When Harry Met Sally as Sally's best friend, Marie. And that sort of self-deprecating humor. And When Harry Met Sally, Marie's like always dating men who are married. And she keeps saying, like, you know, saying, oh, he's why do I always, he's never going to leave his wife. He's never going to leave her. Why do I keep doing this? And I could hear that voice a lot, especially, you know, in the middle, middle towards the end of the book, when we see sort of, we see even clearer, I think her insecurities. And I, I really, really loved seeing that sort of come out on the page in a way that I, I like I could hear, I could actually like hear her saying these things right. in my head. The book really conveys the sense of Suzanne and, by association, Carrie Fisher, I would guess, as this wry, self-aware island in a sea of unbearable personalities. And in sort of the tension between Suzanne and her milieu, you get such a vivid sense of the exact shape of Hollywood's social pretensions. Like, I loved that scene at the dinner party. Yes. Um, it was, uh, I mean, to explain a little bit, Carrie, I mean, Suzanne, yeah, I keep calling her Carrie, kind of unwillingly goes to this dinner party at some fancy lady's house full of Hollywood types and oh my god it's just mm-hmm. so riveting the the personalities that are established succinctly and brutally sitting around this dining table and there's this one scene when a guy is like relentlessly telling the story about being eru- interrupted by an annoying colleague while he was talking to Princess Diana and the premise of this ostensibly hilarious story is that the tacit compact of social climbing mandates that you don't interrupt someone who's talking to someone who's more important than you are. And everyone in the room seems to understand it and regard it as like inherently hilarious that someone would break that compact. And the only one who can see the absurdity is Suzanne Vale. Yeah. And that that tableau also has the uh, or that uh, anecdote. Uh, what what would you call it? That scene also has the amazing line um, said of an aging British actri- actress. Mm-hmm. Uh, her face was a Richter scale registering her comprehension. Which oh my I- god, I love that line. <laughs> I feel I I don't want to name any names, but I was like, I know people who exactly like that. It was just <laughs> crystallized. Yeah, well, just and because it gets at the performativity of like this entire group of people. Um, they're all performing for each other. And I think one of the kind of interesting distinctions that the narrator draws or that Suzanne draws is that they're all performing and for some reason, like, she's not happy doing it. And they seem to be happy or at least unperturbed uh, living this way. And, like, that disconnect between, you know, maybe everyone is doing the same behavior and yet she feels like she's broken because she isn't okay with it and yet they are. Um, I thought that was kind of like an interesting psychological setup. I also have to say that I also loved the way in which she set up uh, Suzanne's return to her first film after being in rehab. Um, The way in which like she gets to set and immediately everyone seems to think that she's holding something back and she gets told 
over and over again just throughout the day, like by her by the director, by her agent. Uh, I can't remember. Someone calls her. She gets at least like two or three phone calls and it just keeps building up and everyone keeps saying, you're holding something back. Like, you got to be more fun. Let loose. And she's like, I don't I I don't know how to get loose. Like, just why, why is everyone telling me this? And the pile up is the way it builds up is just fantastic. And then to have her. I admit I had to read this a couple of times before I finally understood what was happening. But when she started sort of mimicking everything on set so everyone could laugh at her, where she was pretending that someone else was calling her to tell her she's holding back. Right. Like I, I just thought it was like, oh, I can totally see Carrie Fisher doing something like that. And right. again, I know it's not semi-autobiographical, but like... It well, seems- no, I think that's a really good point. I also love that scene. And there's some quote in the book, I can't remember the exact quote now, but it's about... Her, Suzanne seeking out surreality because the reality of her quote unquote perfect life is too much for her to bear. Mm -hmm. And so much of this book is about her search for surreality. Like she applies it like a shroud over her real life. She's a true absurdist. Like that is her coping mechanism. And I felt like, I mean, in the way she kind of goes on this Dada riff about, you know, my my nanny from my childhood just called to tell me that I needed to loosen up in this part. (laughs) And uh, I felt like it helps you understand Carrie Fisher's public persona a lot too you know the way she gave such wacky interviews and toted her dog gary around and she was just this kind of da da public persona and it makes you realize that that was her defense mechanism and that was how she sort of moved through the world she dealt with an untenable reality by making it somehow weird and surreal yeah and i think that that also helps us understand this book because it's not straight up realism it's satire a lot of it is satire so there's like glimmers of real psychological acuity but it's also these characters behave in ways that you wouldn't necessarily expect real people to behave we took it all we brought them to our land an endless night ember hot and icy cold the rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I do think that talking about her as a satirist as well as um, a sharp observer of actual human reality is a good way to get to the sex-crazed producer who occupies most of the second section. Um, Were you guys as completely entertained um, by that conversation as I was? Like, they just kept talking past each other. They were like two versions of the same irresistible but also insufferable personality. Um, And I just – I thought it was so well-paced, like so – beautifully done uh, this conversation and I wonder if you guys have thoughts on this character the I'm forgetting his name uh, Jack I think Jack yeah, Burroughs, Burroughs. Jack heads Burroughs. up uh, Dennis Quaid plays him in the movie really let that sit in your brain yeah huh okay yeah I I I loved it I thought that it showed that Carrie's her ability to write men and women like as equally fascinating and in a way that felt realistic to me, or at least the way I imagine men and women in the 80s who are in Hollywood <laughs> would, would think. And, and seeing sort of his sex craze discussion versus her more like 
uh, you know, I, I invited a guy over and I didn't I said I didn't want to have sex or, or I said I couldn't have sex. But then we had sex anyway the next night. Like I really loved the just how these two characters were talking at each other and but not with each other but it all sort of blended together in a way the 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 pacing worked really well for me yeah and I think it actually it's strange another book that I'm reading and Laura knows this because she assigned it to me um at the same time or that I was reading at the same time was um Transit by Rachel Cusk and she employs a kind of similar strategy of letting people skewer themselves in their own Mm -hmm. words that's exactly right and it is so potent to to step back. And of course, the narrator isn't totally innocent because, because there are ways in which you frame it to make the person seem even more ridiculous. But to just let them go on at length and damn themselves. Um, and it's just, it's so delicious. Um, and she's really, really good at that. And she does it with Alex. And then Alex gets his counterpart in Jack. And I think it it happens a little bit later, too. Um, but I just, I very much appreciated the sort of subtle restraint of that approach. Right. I agree. I mean, and that was, that relationship was such a nice little depiction of how her, how she self-sabotaged through her romantic relationships. And you could, you got the sense at the same time of how monstrous Jack was, but also how beguiling and how compatible they were and how hard it was for her. I mean, they were sort of compatible in a, in a in the sense of like their rapport and their mutual magnetism but also i mean it was just so hard for her to stay away while she was being totally destroyed by him um and i thought in the sense i mean this was an, a memoir or no it was not a memoir this is a novel about you know a character self-destructing and then digging her out from that self-destruction and jack i thought was a great uh and sort of vigorous force clawing her back into self-destruction and she had to sort of overcome that as part of the arc of the of the book Mm -hmm. and i also love when she says um and he actually relates this to his therapist but apparently she tells him if i could make a man i'd make him just like you and try to change him which kind of encapsulates Mm, all of the dysfunction um speaking of male um i don't know suitors for suzanne aisha what are your thoughts on Jesse Templeton, the lovely, the nice young novelist who she magically meets in a fairy tale green room at the end of the book? Um, it it sort of came out of nowhere for me. I was like, wait, what? Um, <laughs> and the way at which it happened, sort of to your your earlier quibbles, Katie, about like the the first part for you feeling as though. It was a little too cliche. I did feel like the ending of meeting Jesse, it felt, it, not that it felt sudden, because I think that her entire conversation with Lucy, her her friend, and who is the reason why she meets uh, Jesse in the first place, when, uh, I guess to set the scene, she, Lucy gets a talk show gig to go talk and be a talking head, and uh, she goes with her and is in the green room and is supposed to be watching Lucy and to give her advice and isn't paying any attention uh, because she meets Jesse. And the meet cute, hmm, I think it, it felt sort of tidy to me in the way that after going, being in Suzanne's head for so long and having her be so insecure and there's, you know, the great 
there's there's a great moment where she's like looking in the mirror at herself and she you know she says like she she says to herself that she's ugly or she doesn't like the way she looks but then she says but i know i'm pretty i don't know why i think that i'm not attractive or something along those lines like that insecurity sort of just melts away in a way and i feel like when she meets jesse not that it's completely gone but I do think that it it felt a little too tidy for for my taste. At the same time, I was happy for her, <laughs> so it was like, yeah. oh, this is nice. Like it's nice to see her, and we do see her sort of trying to figure out figure out what these feelings are, and that felt real to me. And that she she says like that she seems she knows that she wouldn't ordinarily turn away a relationship like this. Why is she falling? It's it, we see her falling, but it did feel a little, I don't know, pat. Yeah. Right. Well, at this point, I'm fighting my impulse to continue just like dropping spoiler bombs on you from the movie that neither of you have seen. But (laughs) if if you think this is Pat, then you should see the romantic relationship that ends the movie version of Postcards from the Edge. I mean, essentially, uh, Jesse does not exist. And well, okay, I'm going to. Is it okay if I spoil this? Yes. Okay, I'm going to do it. Sorry, guys. Um, Jesse does not exist. And the kind of redemptive and promising romantic glimmer at the end comes from her decision to go out with that doctor who sent her flowers after no. pumping her stomach. Wait, I seriously? <laughs> what? I'm so, so sorry. Dude. I know. <laughs> he, uh, he reappears and then he... Wait, uh, does he ask her out? Yeah. Okay. Yes, they're out. Mm. So, but the movie is so good and in large part... It's good because it doesn't draw the same emotional drama from her own reckoning with her romantic life. It's really about her push-pull with her, the overweening charisma of her mother. Mm. And that just makes for sort of a tighter and more um, interesting movie in a lot of ways. The, I mean, the movie just strips out all the stuff that's not everything that's manic and uh charismatic about the novel but it strips out all of the all of the stuff that feels that way narratively like it really tightens it up um and so the novel i mean i really loved reading this but it it dragged a little bit sometimes because it was all over the place and it sort of i had i had to reinvest myself in her every time and so i liked that jesse provided some kind of closure i felt like i needed some kind of closure in a sense her arc like it almost happened really quickly at the beginning. Like she went to rehab and she changed and then she remained changed over the course of the book. Um, whereas the movie kind of maps that out for you over its own arc a little bit more. It can kind of, it, it, it dispenses her, her, you know, like self-revelations more dramatically. I really like the stuff with Jesse because, I mean, it was a persuasive you know, rendering of what it feels like to enter a normal, stable, undramatic relationship and to feel sort of safe and mutually appreciated, but also not mutually exoticized anymore and to sort of come to terms with the reality on the ground of a relationship. And it was moving after all the surreality that she had applied to her own life over the course of the book to see that take shape in the last few pages of the book. That's true. I okay. would I would agree with that. Yeah. I mean, you guys are talking me into it. Um, I oh, did you also not really? Well, feel it? <laughs> yeah. So the thing is, I agree that he provided this kind of necessary closure, and that given the terms that the novel had set out, like there wasn't really 
an ending that would have felt as satisfying as this one. But I kind of reject those terms. Like, there's kind of a strand that goes through the novel that says that true happiness or fulfillment or the happy ending is finding a man. And you have, you know, uh, lines like the beginning of the third section where she says she wanted to be legitimized by marrying the Prince of Wales or something. Um, and if she couldn't do that, then she would find uh, legitimacy in work. And there's just, and you know, she has this kind of heart to heart with her grandmother about how to settle for a man. And it just, there was this kind of retrograde energy that I thought was like beneath some of the book that was really saying that, um, in order for her to be happy, she needs to let go true of her various like neuroses and pathologies around men. But the manifestation of that like more healthy mindset would be a great relationship as opposed to just her being more secure in herself. And I know that this is like kind of a quibble and yeah, it's great to see her in a normal, happy relationship with, like, this lovely novelist whose work is funny and he sounded like a dreamboat and good for you, Suzanne. Um, but I I did kind of – my hackles just went up a little bit at that ending. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't even thought about it in that way. But, yeah, now that you say that, it, that I think that is also sort of my underlying discomfort with the way that just sort of – appeared and evolved uh, now that you mention it though laura like because you said and it makes sense like you said at the like at the beginning every all the change happens there and then there's like not really anywhere for it to go after that what i found interesting is her choice to to make the story not so much about recovery from drug like she's obviously it's about recovery but it's not about her she's not fiending for drugs all the time she she channels that through Alex's character and so instead we have Suzanne sort of she becomes in a way almost numb after coming out of rehab or huh, like unable to readjust to her normal life and it's not that I mean she throws off a couple offhand comments about like how you know she could have a drink or she would want a drink but it, it's not like we get that manic She's not she's not she's able to come overcome it way faster than Alex is. Right. And so I think that's really interesting that this is this is not so much a story about at least her character's recovery. It's about her sort of the after aftermath of the recovery. And that's somehow also has to do with a man. <laughs> it all boils down to. I think it's that's really a smart observation that she channels that through Alex in a sense. And so in giving up Alex, the movie uh, has to hand her a moment where she almost relapses into drugs. Like, because we see her struggling in the throes a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, it's hard to say how does it work novelistically to kind of outsource that inner turmoil to a totally separate character. It's weird. It's like a weird trick. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, it's hard to say whether it works or doesn't work. It, it probably sort of objectively doesn't really work if we're talking about, you know, building a novel. But it's captivating i mean it's really uh, alex as a character is this odd little satellite and i couldn't look away from him yeah and it, it also kind of it helps with the sense of this person casting about for herself like in the same way that that um suzanne is 
searching for herself. And I think that is like kind of the main challenge that she has. Like it starts with her writing her brother and saying, today I stood in a recently bombed out train station. I looked at the charred twisted metal and I thought, finally, my outsides match my insides. And the whole project of of her recovery, I think, is like getting her outsides to match her insides. And I actually just started writing like all the parts where she observes that her brain and her behavior are completely, you know, uh, going in opposite directions. So then she later says, I'm not suicidal. My behavior might be, but I'm certainly not. She also says, like, I have an anorexic brain, but I can't do the behavior. And then they have this long exchange about, you know, we live in a city of envelopes, but you're a letter and I'm a letter. Um, And so there's all this kind of exploration of what it means to have, like, an interior life that is so disconnected um, from your presentation and that I think also gets to the uh the switch the kind of jarring shift from first person to third person but anyway um all of that is to say that you can kind of see Carrie Fisher and maybe this is reading too much into like a connection between the two women um but you can see Carrie Fisher also kind of cycling through selves and casting about for various um mouthpieces and personalities that can express different facets of her as a writer. And so I thought Alex was kind of a nice um, representative of that impulse that we also see Suzanne uh, showing. I would add, just to sort of piggyback on what the good points you were just making, Katie, is that I, you know, as I as I mentioned, this book gives you such a sharp sense of um, – what this specific ways in which Hollywood is insufferable and phony and also of the ways in which Fisher herself or Suzanne, but Fisher herself was different. You know, she was uh, brash and hilarious and brutally hard on herself. And she loathed the phoniness and shallowness around her, but she could never quite, it seems, figure out how to position herself in relation to it to be at once, you know, successful and beloved and above it all. She was such a good anthropologist of Hollywood's absurdity, but and as much as she could sit back and and you know and laugh about it and satirize it, it was hard to separate herself from it. Um, it was still, I mean, it's still kind of uh, it it. She was caught in this in this limbo for her whole life. Yeah, that's really beautifully put. And I would also add that maybe that's another rationale for outsourcing Alex because when you look at his contribution to sort of the plot of this book, he's the one who bases his screenplay on their time in rehab, which is kind of what she's doing with this novel. So she can't even resist like jabbing herself in that last way, you know, like it's not it's not Suzanne, the sort of uh, phoenix rising from the ashes, who um, writes the or makes art that reflects her experience in rehab. It's this crazy guy, Alex, who's kind of a figure of fun. And so she's she's never really <laughs> settled into herself or able to to um, really be OK with her own choices in, in a way. So um, I also found that kind of depressing, but also interesting. Well, that's a that's a great point, too, because then in the end, when the movie is made um, that Alex wrote, Suzanne doesn't star in it, even though he wanted her to star in it originally. He winds up hiring some some other random actress, um, which and then he has an affair with her. Right. Right. Instead yeah. Of with Suzanne. 
Okay. Um, so we have talked about this book uh, for a while, and Laura has talked about the movie because she is <laughs> the one who has been initiated into that experience. Um, but I do want to ask you guys whether you would recommend it overall. So let's start with you, Laura. What do you think? Uh, just to continue in that vein, I would recommend this novel and the movie as companion pieces. I really liked uh, processing them side by side. It was strange, but it was interesting to see, especially because Carrie Fisher wrote both of them. And to see to to read the novel and then to see basically Alex as this extreme outlying character overlaid on her character and merged into her storyline. Um, and then to see her mother named Doris in the movie loom larger and sort of swallow up the story that she was really only marginally involved in um, in the novel form. It's just they make a really interesting sort of consecutive experiences. That's fascinating. Thank you so much. And Aisha, what do you think? Well, I definitely plan to watch the movie. I wish that I could have watched it before this, but uh, I'm looking forward to checking it out. And I would definitely recommend this. I think it's for me, at least, as an intro, I haven't read any of Carrie Fisher's other memoirs or her other writings. I, I obviously, I've seen a lot of the movies that she has either uh, written with credit or has ghostwritten. And I think as an introduction to her as like a writer, like from pen to page or typewriter to, to page or whatever, I think it's a great introduction to her wit and her smarts and her ability to capture, like you mentioned earlier, Laura, like so many different voices and how she's just a great, she she's a great observer and you can pick it up in the way that these characters are written. So I think if you want a delightful time and if you're listening to this podcast, now you know that it could be a little confusing so you won't be as in the dark as I was when I was first reading it. You're our canary in the coal mine. (laughs) Very much so. So definitely recommend. Thank you so much, Aisha. Um, And for my part, yes, no surprise here. I thought this was just a ton of fun. Um, I'm just going to throw some more lines that I liked at you before we leave because I didn't get a chance to fit them in earlier. Um, She writes, I shot through my 20s like a luminous thread through a dark needle blazing towards my destination, nowhere, which I just thought was great. Um, And then also I liked the part where her hairstylist tells her that her hairstyles in all her past movies have been very unflattering because I know that that was... (laughs) I love that. (laughs) That was apparently an issue for Carrie Fisher too. Um, So yes, I do recommend this book. And um, I think that takes us to the close of our discussion. So thank you so much, both of you, for joining me. This was really fun. Thank you so much. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audio Book Club at slate.com slash abc. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audio Book Club in the iTunes store and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Slate's Audio Book Club is part of the Panoply Network. Find out more about all of our great podcasts at panoply.fm. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. And thanks for the assist, Matthew Schwartz. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. For Laura Bennett and Aisha Harris, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.